The following broadcast is released under a Creative Commons license. I believe in Jesus Christ, the only Son of God. I believe He lived and died, and that He rose again. I believe and trust in Him. Ascended into hell, Christ our living head will one day come again to judge the living and the dead. I believe and trust in Him. I will trust in my Redeemer, sing of His love that lasts. Welcome all to Pastor Yeshua. You've been listening to Creed by Richard Jensen from his album, Order of Service. By way of introduction, Pastor is an acrostic which stands for Preaching All Salvation Through One Redeemer. Our Redeemer, Yeshua, Jesus, is the Hebrew name for the Lord. It means Yahweh, the Lord, is salvation. Translated from Hebrew into the Greek language, the name Yeshua becomes Iesus, The English transliteration for Jesus is Jesus. This program deals with apologetics, questions on and about God, the Bible, and the Christian faith. I take questions and seek by scripture to give answers and encouragement for everyone, including the tough-minded living in today's skeptical society. And now, let's join Pastor Yeshua. Welcome again to Pastor Yeshua. As stated in an earlier episode discussing types and shadows, when we study all of Scripture, we tend to see that indeed God seems to create all things according to a pattern which testifies of Him. As we continue to look and study the visible and invisible things of creation, we are able to increasingly see God's reflection to some degree in that mirror. When these examples occur within Scripture, we characteristically refer to them as types or shadows. We shall also see that ultimately, as with all Scripture, that these types and shadows point to the substance which is Jesus. In the first three episodes, we continued our study of types and shadows with the story of Moses the Deliverer. Beginning in part one, we saw how that Egypt was the type of sin and how Israel, God's people, are the type of all those who are in bondage to sin. We were introduced to Moses, who, like Jesus, was appointed as a deliverer for his own people. 
we saw how Moses, like Jesus, having the right to royalty, volunteered to humble himself as a servant to save his people. We saw how Moses, like Jesus, went out to his people to save them and was rejected. Having been rejected, we saw Moses, who, like Jesus, finds the seven daughters of Midian, whose name means strife, in the desert. We saw Moses, who, like Jesus, provides salvation to the seven daughters, who are the type of the seven churches, ends their strife, and proceeds to provide them with water for their flock. Moses then enters into a relationship of marriage with Zipporah, whose name means to turn oneself about. This mirrors the substance Jesus, whose desire is to enter into a relationship with all who are willing by faith, through grace, to repent, i.e. turn from our way, rebellion, and accept his imputed righteousness on our behalf. We saw Moses' two children by way of his marriage to Zipporah, Gershom, and Eleazar. We saw Moses, who, like Jesus, shepherds his flock, feeding and pasturing them at the foot of God's mountain, where they wait patiently as God prepares Moses to return for his people Israel, who are in blindness, and deliver them from bondage. In the third episode, we saw Moses' encounter with the angel at the burning bush. In this encounter, we saw a meeting between Moses and the eternal God by his own name, I Am, as later revealed by his son Jesus, the second person of the Godhead. We saw the interplay via the various Hebrew words and types, demonstrating how, like Moses, all mankind lacks any sufficiency based upon any keeping of the law, any merits, any works, to approach God. Man is barred from standing on God's holy ground by sin, Anyone attempting to approach, apart from being covered by Jesus' shed blood, will encounter the point of the sword and the prick of death as seen earlier in the burning bush. In part four, we saw the substantive resolution to the conundrum of the brief incident where the angel of the Lord seeks Moses' life, but is stayed by Zipporah, who circumcises their firstborn son Gershom. In part 5, we reviewed the ten plagues which demonstrated the interaction between Pharaoh, Moses, and God. This interaction was the type which demonstrates the quintessential nature and character of the natural man who does not know God versus those who are born from above and in whom his spirit abides. In this episode, we will examine how the ten plagues was to demonstrate God's judgment and wrath against Egypt, as well as the various Egyptian gods in whom Pharaoh and the Egyptians placed their trust. Let's look at the ten plagues and their possible correlation to Egypt's gods. The first plague of the water being turned to blood would have been directed against the Egyptian deity Hapi, who was considered the god of the Nile. Happy was a deity of fertility. He provided water, food, and the yearly inundation of the Nile. He was also known as the Lord of the Fishes and Birds of the Marshes. Happy was a human-headed god often depicted as partly male and partly female in appearance. Happy was also given the title of, quote, the maker of barley and wheat, unquote. 
In his own right, Hapi was recognized as one of the greatest Egyptian gods, and he was declared not only the supposed maker of the universe, but the creator of everything from which it and all things sprang. The second plague of the frogs would have been directed against the Egyptian deity Hecate, who was supposedly the goddess of childbirth, creation, and grain germination. Hecate was depicted as a frog, or a woman with the head of a frog. The ancient Egyptians saw the frog as symbolizing fruitfulness, abundance, and coming life. Frogs were so sacred in Egypt that even the accidental slaughter of one was often punished with death. Ironically, despite this, God's judgment forced the people of Egypt to gather the decaying bodies of the frogs and put them into heaps as trash. The fact that Pharaoh entreated Moses to intercede with Jehovah to take away the frogs was a stark reminder which forced Pharaoh to recognize the God of Israel as being the author of the plague. The third plague of the lice would have been directed against the Egyptian deity Geb, who was considered the great god of the earth. Geb supposedly guided the dead to heaven, and he gave them meat and drink. Egyptians gave offerings to Geb for the bounty of the soil. The word lice is translated as sandflies or fleas in some versions. The Hebrew word kinem comes from a root word meaning to dig. Thus, the idea based upon this translation would probably mean that the insect in question would dig under the skin. This plague would have been particularly onerous to the Egyptian priests, the reason being that as a result of the plague, the priests would have been required to shave their hair off and take extreme precaution with any clothing to avoid having lice on their bodies. Since this would have been difficult, if not impossible, their rituals would have been adversely affected due to lice infestation. The fourth plague of the swarm of flies is more properly translated simply as a swarm. Translators added the word flies in an effort to extrapolate an interpretation which may not necessarily be correct. Some scholars believe that this swarm was the blood-sucking gadfly. Others believe the swarm was the dogfly, an insect described in detail by the Jewish philosopher Philo Judaeus. Whether the swarm was the gadfly or the dogfly, then this plague would have been directed against the Egyptian deity Utachet or Buto. Buto was depicted as a cobra twined around a papyrus stem. She was the tutelary goddess of Lower Egypt. She was considered the protector of the Egyptian king. She was placed as a cobra amulet on the crown of the king. In any case, it is interesting to note that this is the first plague in which God made a distinction between his people and the Egyptians. According to Exodus chapter 8, verses 22 and 23, quote, And in that day I will set apart the land of Goshen, in which my people dwell, that no swarms of flies shall be there, in order that you may know that I am the Lord in the midst of the land. I will make a difference between my people and your people, unquote. The fifth plague was against the livestock. Horses and cattle were not only highly valued in the land of Egypt, 
but they were also sacred. All Egyptians used bulls and bull cows for sacrifice. The god Apis was represented as a bull and was considered the living image of the god Ptah. He was also associated with Ra, from whom he borrowed the disc he wore between his horns. The Apis bull supposedly had the power of prophecy, and when the Apis bull died, the land of Egypt mourned for him as they would for the loss of the monarch himself. The sixth plague of the boils was likely against Imhotep the physician, who was later deified into a god, and Orthoth, the god of magic and healing. Some believe that the boils were in fact skin anthrax, which is a black abscess that develops into a pustule. This disease produces painful boils that affected the knees, legs, and soles of the feet. If so, this explains why Pharaoh's magicians were unable to stand before Moses. The seventh plague of hail was directed against Nut. Nut was the Egyptian sky goddess. Her general appearance was that of a woman resting on hands and feet with her body forming an arc to represent the sky. Her limbs typified the four pillars on which the sky was supposed to rest. The eighth plague of the locusts was directed against Seth, the god of crops. It also would have borne witness against Nephri, the god of grain, and Ermutet, the goddess of childbirth and crops. Seth was worshipped as the god of the wind and the desert storms who was hoped would grant the strength of the storms to his followers. Nephri was a goddess of grain. He is depicted in human form, often as a child, suckled and dotted to represent grains of corn. He is associated with the most used types of grain, namely barley and emmerwheat. Umutet was the goddess of nourishment, fertility, and the harvest in ancient Egyptian religion. The ninth plague of darkness was directed against Amun-Ra, the sun god. Amun-Ra was considered the ultimate god of the entire ancient Egypt. Egyptians believed him to be the god of kings and the king of gods. He was the oldest and most worshipped ruler of ancient Egypt. Given the fact that the name Amun-Ra means hidden light, the plague of sudden darkness upon Egypt would have been very apropos, if not an ironic, plague. Finally, the tenth plague would have been directed against Pharaoh himself. Remember that each Pharaoh typically saw themselves as being a god. Therefore, in one respect, the attack and ultimate death of Pharaoh's firstborn son, the heir, and next ruler of Egypt would have been a very personal and serious threat, as well as an insult against all Egypt. The common denominator in each plague was that in each case, those gods whom Egypt had created in their vain imaginations to be in control were in fact proven by these plagues to be false and no gods at all. Each Egyptian god and the Egyptians themselves were mocked by these judgments which the true and living god of the universe brought upon them. In every case, this was the stated purpose which was the introduction to the coming plague in question when God repeatedly stated, quote, that ye may know how that I am the Lord, unquote. 
In the end, there was no room for doubt that God had definitively answered the vacuous question posed by Pharaoh at the outset when Pharaoh asked, quote, Who is the Lord that I should obey his voice to let Israel go? Unquote. This brings us to the substance of our type in one regard to our story at this point. As you will recall, Pharaoh is the closest type to Satan. Egypt is the type of the world under the curse of sin. Israel is the type of God's people being called out from sin. And Moses is God's deliverer, the type of Jesus, the perfect deliverer. In essence, from what we know revealed by Scripture, Satan initiated his own fall through the same presumptuous pride demonstrated by Pharaoh. Pharaoh imagined himself to be God. He deified himself and as such sought worship as a god. Satan, like Pharaoh, has always had the desire to enslave as many of God's people as possible and place them into servitude and worship to him rather than allowing them to have the freedom to leave and thereby worship God and enter into his rest. In this respect, Satan mirrors the same hardened heart of Pharaoh in which Satan says of his captors to sin, quote, Who is the Lord that I should obey his voice to let Israel go? Unquote. The good news is that from the standpoint of the entirety of God's revealed word, his plan, like that of the story of Exodus, is to eventually pour out his judgment against Satan as he did Pharaoh. God will pour out his plagues and wrath upon the world as he did Egypt. He will deliver his people now as he did Israel then. In that day, Satan, the world, and all mankind will know, as God has said, how that I am the Lord. Another issue worth considering is how God's judgment upon Pharaoh, Egypt, and its false gods finds some similarities to those judgments poured out upon the world as discussed later throughout Scripture, and in particular the book of Revelation. Let's review those similarities, turning to Joel chapter 2, verse 28 through 31, we find this, quote, And it shall come to pass afterward that I will pour out my Spirit upon all flesh, And your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. Your old men shall dream dreams. Your young men shall see visions. And also upon the servants and upon the handmaids in those days I will pour out my spirit. And I will show wonders in the heavens and in the earth, blood and fire and pillars of smoke. The sun shall be turned into darkness, and the moon into blood, before the great and terrible day of the Lord come, As we open Revelation chapter 8, verse 8, we read of several possible events which could be candidates mirroring the first plagues shown in Exodus. And the second angel sounded, and as it were, a great mountain burning with fire was cast into the sea and the third part of the sea became blood." Unquote. In Revelation 11, we learn of two appointed witnesses who will do great miracles and wonders, again for the express purpose of giving testimony of God's power. 
verses 3 to 6, give us the following account of God's plagues yet to come. Quote, And I will give power unto my two witnesses, and they shall prophesy a thousand two hundred and threescore days, clothed in sackcloth. These are the two olive trees and the two candlesticks standing before the God of the earth. And if any man will hurt them, fire proceedeth out of their mouth and devoureth their enemies. And if any man will hurt them, he must in this manner be killed. These have the power to shut heaven that it rain not in the days of their prophecy, and have power over waters to turn them to blood, and to smite the earth with all plagues as often as they will." Unquote. Also, Revelation chapter 16, verses 3 through 7, quote, And the second angel poured out his vial upon the sea, and it became as the blood of a dead man. And every living soul died in the sea. And the third angel poured out his vial upon the rivers and fountains of waters, and they became blood. And I heard the angel of the waters say, Thou art righteous, O Lord, which art and wast and shall be, because thou hast judged thus. For they have shed the blood of saints and prophets, and thou hast given them blood to drink, for they are worthy. And I heard another out of the altar say, Even so, Lord God Almighty, true and righteous are thy judgments. Next, we have the second plague of frogs. Turning to Revelation chapter 16, verses 12 through 14, we read, quote, And the sixth angel poured out his vial upon the great river Euphrates, and the water thereof was dried up, that the way of the kings of the east might be prepared. And I saw three unclean spirits like frogs come out of the mouth of the dragon, and out of the mouth of the beast, and out of the mouth of the false prophet. For they are the spirits of devils working miracles, which go forth unto the kings of the earth and of the whole world to gather them to the battle of that great day of God Almighty. While at first glance this comparison may seem tenuous, the connection becomes even more convincing given the fact that the original language within the text of Exodus uses the Hebrew word. Tesfordia, meaning frog, instead of the plural form, Tesfordim, meaning frogs, plural. Initially, this peculiar use of a singular tense word, instead of a plural word, seems to cause difficulty. However, as it turns out, there is an interesting comment on this topic found in a 14th century compilation of the Pentateuch called the Midrash Haggadah. This work explains the occurrence of the second plague of frogs in Egypt by saying one enormous frog crawled out of the Nile. The frog then opened its mouth wide and spewed out legions of smaller frogs and that it was these smaller frogs that covered Egypt. The explanation found above sounds more like science fiction than history until we look at the last portion of the quote from Revelation, which talks about spirits of devils. At this point, we realize the reality that in many instances, 
What is in view is ultimately the spiritual dimension which is behind the curtain of the physical manifestation being seen. During the third plague of the lice, we read the first instance in which Egypt's magicians could not imitate the plague of lice. Yet, despite the inability to copy it, and the magician's recognition saying, quote, This is the finger of God, unquote, Pharaoh hardened his heart and refused to repent. This echoes the same attitude of the world found in Revelation chapter 9, verses 20 and 21, which say, quote, And the rest of the men which were not killed by these plagues, yet repented not of the works of their hands, that they should not worship devils and idols of gold and silver and brass and stone and of wood, which neither can see nor hear nor walk. Neither repented they of their murders, nor of their sorceries, nor of their fornication, nor of their thefts, unquote. As one can plainly see, the situation of the world found in Revelation chapter 9, verses 20 and 21 during that time also matches the landscape of Egypt found in Exodus. In both cases, the inhabitants of the world were invested entirely in the worship of false gods and idols. Likewise, the resulting plagues of judgments in both cases are directed to demonstrate the reality of man's foolish rebellion against God, as well as God's sovereignty. Ultimately, in both cases, God's wrath, along with the plagues, are poured out upon the world as just judgment for its rebellion. Similar to the sixth plague of boils upon Egypt, in Revelation chapter 16, verses 1 and 2, we read, quote, And I heard a great voice out of the temple, saying to the seven angels, Go your ways and pour out the vials of the wrath of God upon the earth. And the first went and poured out his vial upon the earth, and there fell a noisome and grievous sore upon the men which had the mark of the beast, and upon them which worshipped his image." Unquote. What is of interest here is the term, quote, mark, unquote. Throughout scripture, taking a mark upon oneself is symbolic of the implantation of a covenant. Circumcision would probably be the best example of a physical mark consistent with adopting an agreement or covenant. Here, in Revelation chapter 16, verses 1 and 2, the writer refers to a grievous sore suffered by those who have the mark of the beast. This mark, of course, refers to the well-known passages found in Revelation chapter 13, where we are introduced in verse 11 to the following. Quote, and I beheld another beast coming up out of the earth, and he had two horns like a lamb, and he spake as a dragon, unquote. This personage, seen as a dragon, goes on in verse 16 of the same chapter to do the following, quote, And he causeth all, both small and great, rich and poor, free and bond, to receive a mark in their right hand or in their foreheads, unquote. Thus, this dragon who most recognized to be the man of lawlessness, the anti-Messiah, or the Antichrist, causes great, rich and poor, free and bond, 
to enter into a covenant with him by virtue of a mark. In the end, it would appear that this act of marking by the dragon is a response to counterfeit God's act of marking his own people mentioned in Revelation chapter 9, verse 4, which says, quote, And it was commanded them that they should not hurt the grass of the earth, neither any green thing, neither any tree, but only those men which have not the seal of God in their foreheads, unquote. Alternately, or in addition to the dragon's act being an act of counterfeit, this act of marking in response to God's mark of ownership and covenant can likely be seen as an act of rebellion and defiance. Either way, the ultimate players, God and Satan, as well as the ostensible goals, are the same. Insofar as the sixth plague of hail is concerned, we find two entries in Revelation worth consideration. The first is Revelation chapter 8, verse 7, which says, quote, The first angel sounded, and there followed hail and fire mingled with blood, and they were cast upon the earth, and the third part of the trees was burned up, and all green grass was burned up, unquote. The second is Revelation chapter 16, verse 21, which says, quote, And there fell upon men a great hail out of heaven, every stone about the weight of a talent. And men blasphemed God because of the plague of the hail, for the plague thereof was exceedingly great, unquote. The eighth plague of locusts conjures up one of the most memorable judgments from Revelation chapter 9, verses 1 through 3, which says, Quote, and the fifth angel sounded, and I saw a star fall from heaven unto earth, and to him was given the key of the bottomless pit. And he opened the bottomless pit, and there arose a smoke out of the pit, as the smoke of a great furnace. And the sun and the air were darkened by reason of the smoke of the pit. And there came out of the smoke locusts upon the earth. And unto them was given power, as the scorpions of the earth have power. Unquote. The ninth plague of darkness also has a parallel found in Revelation chapter eight, verse twelve, which says, quote, "And the fourth angel sounded, and the third part of the sun was smitten, and the third part of the moon, and the third part of the stars, so as the third part of them was darkened, and the day shone not for a third part of it." and the night likewise, unquote. Also, Revelation chapter 16, verse 10, quote, And the fifth angel poured out his vial upon the seed of the beast, and his kingdom was full of darkness, and they gnawed their tongues for pain, unquote. The tenth and final plague was the death of the firstborn by the destroyer, also known as the Passover. In its first application, this event is the foreshadowing type showing the substance of the sacrifice of Jesus, whose blood is applied over our lives through grace by faith to cover us, just as the blood of the Paschal Lamb was placed over the doorposts of the Israelites. By virtue of this sacrifice and our willingness to apply it to our lives by faith, Satan is forced to release us from the bonds of sin and death in the same way Pharaoh was forced to release the Israelites from Egypt, which is the type of sin. 
Likewise, we, like the Israelites, are instructed to eat in haste with staff in hand, with a sense of urgency and expectancy, ready to leave at any moment en route to the promised land, whether by death of our bodies or by the rapture of his body, the church. The second and final application is that of the last days. During this time, God's word in Revelation chapter 7 reveals that after the church is raptured, there will be 144,000 selected by God from the tribes of Israel who will be sealed by their gods in their foreheads. This seal, based upon their commitment and relationship of faith in the Messiah, Jesus, will protect them from God's wrath which will be poured out on a rebellious world, just as the blood of the Paschal Lamb protected and allowed the destroyer to pass over the Israelites in Egypt. Remember, the Passover was designed specifically to kill or spare the firstborn children, depending on their standing regarding whether or not the blood of the Lamb was applied or not. Also, remember that God himself refers to Israel as his firstborn in Exodus chapter 4, verse 22. Consequently, once again, during the time mentioned in Revelation, God will spare Israel and anyone else for that matter who has entered into an abiding relationship with Jesus through his shed blood applied to their lives. This truth is verified in many places, including John chapter 1, verse 12, quote, But as many as received him, to them gave he power to become the sons of God, even them that believe on his name, unquote. Romans chapter 8, verse 14, quote, For as many as are led by the Spirit of God, they are the sons of God, unquote. 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 18, quote, And will be a father unto you, and ye shall be my sons and daughters, saith the Lord Almighty, unquote. Galatians chapter 3, verse 26, quote, for ye are all the children of God by faith in Christ Jesus, unquote. This concludes this episode. Please join me again for part 7. Now, if you have any questions about God, the Bible, or the Christian faith, I encourage you to send me an email at pastor underscore Yeshua at yahoo.com. That's P-A-S-T-O-R underscore Y-E-S-H-U-A at yahoo.com. Thank you for listening. The world falls